Uh, let me just ask a philosophical question that, of course, the answers are always easy to those ones. Um, why is there so much death and destruction in our world? Um, uh, every, time we, every time we turn around, um, every time we turn on the news or, or, or check you know, your news feed, um, there is more mayhem, is there not? Um, and usually in the midst of the, the brokenness, in the midst of the carnage, um, is death, often murder. And we say, how can this be? Like, surely preaching on the sixth commandment, do not murder, has got to be an easy thing to do in our day and age. You know, should it not be? Because, I mean, every major religion in the world would agree that killing is bad. Um, every philosophical system would say that that's not okay, and yet, every time we turn on the news, it's happening again. We continue to kill one another as human beings, and we say, what the heck's going on? Fortunate for us, Moses, as he was addressing uh, the first people of God, um, spoke to this issue of the value of human life, the sanctity of human life, as did Jesus as he was preparing the new people of God, the new covenant people of God, to be his people living in his world. And so we have a, a, a pretty decent volume of material we could be drawing on that, that lobbies toward the point that God loves life. He, he loves life. He wants you to experience life. And he has actually determined that there is a right to life, which we as human beings need to enjoy and need to protect. Now, if we were to go way back before the beginning, so before God began creating, and, and we somehow were able to experience what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit experienced, it would be perfection. There was nothing lacking in, in the relationship with, within the Godhead, within God himself. It was perfect contentment. It was perfect order. It was perfect joy. It was perfect peace. I mean, it's impossible for us to imagine such perfection, and yet such was the case. And it drives us then to the conclusion that God did not begin creating because he was bored. It wasn't like, man, there's nothing on Netflix tonight. You know, why don't we just create a world, you know, where I know it'll be pristine and beautiful, and then I'll create the, 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 my crown jewel of my creative efforts and, and let them screw it all up, you know, and let them, let them disregard me, you know, diss on me to, to boot. I, I, God did not create because he was bored. God created because... The perfect relationship that he enjoyed within himself was so good, he wanted to share it with you. He couldn't not share it. And so he engaged his extraordinary creative capacities, and he created life. And God loves life. He loves all of its beauty, and he loves all of its potential, and, he, and he, he loves the fact that there's mystery and there's wonder in our world, and he loves the joy, and he loves the ecstasy, and all of it was created by his good design for his perfect purposes. And we, we actually begin to see this on the very first page of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Moses recorded each day of God's creative work. 
And at the conclusion of each day, he makes this amazing observation. God looked at all of his, of his efforts and he said, that is good. That is good. I like that. If you're a creative, you may be, have you ever created something and then been able to stand back and, and look at it? Maybe, maybe it, was, it was building something. Maybe it was, was writing a piece of poetry or, or, or a composition. Or, or maybe it was a, a drawing or, or a painting. Or, or something that you created and, you, and then had the privilege of being able to stand back and look at it and say, I like that. That's all right. That's all right. On the fifth day, God created uh, the sea, creatures in the sea, the, the birds of the air, and he said, this is good. Maybe, maybe for you it was sitting on the deck after, you've, after you'd built it, in, in the, the streaming sunshine and saying, this is good. You know, or maybe it was that business deal that, that finally came together through your persistence and through the, the application of your skill and ability, and you say, man... That was hard work. That's good. That's good. On the fifth day, God created uh, the fish of the sea, the, the creatures in the sea, the creatures in the sky. On the sixth day, he created the creatures on, on the land. And then the crown jewel of his creative efforts were you and I. He created human beings. Now, now listen to what he says about that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. In our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. I'm sure you saw, saw that. God stood back at the completion of his, his creative work, and in particular, the crown jewel of all this, his, this creative collection that was his, the creation of humanity, and he said, that is very good. That was his declaration over us. And we begin in the first chapter of the, the first book of the Bible to see that God loves life. We've been attempting to stand with the ancient Israelites on the plains of Moab, as they prepared to enter the land that God had promised to their forefather, Abraham. And in standing with them, we've been attempting to understand their leader Moses' instructions to them because he was very concerned that they would learn to live as God's people in this land of promise. He longed that this group of slaves who now had been freed from slavery would learn how to live rightly and wisely and effectively as free human beings living in this new land, uh, thriving in, in, under God's care and accomplishing God's purposes in this new space. 
And we've been talking about this, it's review, of course, but distilled down to its core, at the very heart of these instructions, is what the Jewish people call the Shema. It comes from the first line of Deuteronomy 6, 4, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And as we've discussed, the expansion of that comes in the Ten Commandments. It just preceded Deuteronomy chapter 5. And it spells out two primary things. It spells out God's rights, and it spells out what we can rightly understand as human rights. God's right to be, to be worshipped exclusively. Have no other gods before me. God's right to be represented accurately. Uh, don't make an idol and say that's me. Uh, don't misrepresent my name. And then the next seven, which we can describe as human rights, effectively, love your neighbor as yourself, is a reasonable summary of the, the next seven commandments. Jesus was the one who actually made that connection for us between Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself which we then come to realize is actually a summary of those last seven commandments of the ten. Love God and love your neighbor. But then we might ask, well, why is this love your neighbor part so important? And we begin to recognize in the whole flow of Scripture that it's important because God loves your neighbor. And we're called to love them too. God loves life. He wants it to be fully experienced and fully realized. And so as we come to the sixth commandment, we begin to hear him declaring, look, everyone has the right to life, so don't destroy it. Don't take it. Specifically, don't murder. And the foundation of this commandment, going back uh, to this human, this idea that human life is sacred. If you're following along in your sermon notes, it's there. I think they've been putting my cell number up. If you want to ask questions, um, I'll uh, attempt to address those maybe at the very close of the service this morning. Human life is sacred, so, so don't destroy it. Um, I created life. I love life. Don't, don't destroy human life. And it's based on this idea that there is unique dignity to human life because we've been made in the image of God. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So he created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them, and he said, it, this is very good. But, but, we, but we quickly realize that human life is fragile. I remember the first time kind of ever really thinking about this. I was, I was a child, and I was watching, I'm pretty sure I was watching Star Trek. Um, and, and some alien vessel had encountered the Star Trek Enterprise, and the scene kind of was in the, the capsule of the alien vessel, and these kind of horrid, monstrous kind of creatures were musing about how fleshy and unprotected and vulnerable the humans clearly were, because they didn't have armor or plating or anything like this, and, and they thought it would be pretty easy to kill them. And I thought, they're right. They're kind of... You know, not much protection there. Now, they hadn't met Captain Kirk or Picard, whichever one that series it was. You know, that, that's the difference maker, of course. Um, far more seriously, uh, I remember being confronted with my own mortality uh, for the first time when I was about 18 or 19 years of age. 
I was working for a custom builder, and uh, we were on the roof of a home that we were um, that we were renovating, and we were replacing the shingles on the roof. Um, when kind of unexpectedly, one of those Ontario thunderstorms kind of rolled in, and it rolled in fast, and it rolled in hard and heavy. And we're trying to protect this family's home, and so we get tarps up on this. It's, it's a two-story house, but the back went down into the valley, so it was a walkout basement. So effectively, three stories off the back of this house. It's a long way down, and, and the wind is howling, and we've got these tarps flapping. We're trying to get the tarps down and nail them down, and then the thunder starts rolling, and then the lightning starts to crack and here I am drenched wet on the roof of this house and I'm like I am very fragile here this is a very dangerous place to be Um, adding to the urgency of that was that morning uh, I received a phone call that a good friend from our youth group had died the night before in a tragic motorcycle accident I knew life was sacred and life was precious and I was beginning to feel exactly how vulnerable and fragile Life really is. Cain knew it when he rose up. Genesis chapter 4. So so Genesis 1, God creates. Genesis 2 tells us the story again. Genesis 3, mankind fell. Genesis 4, the first two born individuals, Cain and Abel, and Cain rises up and kills his brother. And and he recognized how fragile life could be. And, and, And so God puts in place Necessary protections for the fragility of human life. Genesis 2, in that choice, Genesis 3 rather, in that choice to walk away from God, that was a choice, to, it, was a, it was choosing a path of death rather than the path of life that God called for. Eventually the sin accumulated and God judged it. We see that in Genesis 8 and 9 uh, with a great flood. Judges humankind, spares Noah and his family. They're they're seen to be righteous. And as they walk off the ark, having been preserved by God, God says the following to Noah. For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood... By humans shall their blood be shed. That's referring to terminal blood. Um, For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase it. I'm sure you hear the overtones, uh, the the, the references back to Genesis chapter 1 there. And it's in response to this instruction then that we come this morning to to Deuteronomy chapter 19, 20, and 21. Uh, Moses' words as he's preaching this sermon to the children of Israel, preparing them to go into the land, he'd already given them the Ten Commandments summarized in the Shema, and then he begins to expand on that one commandment at a time as he's encouraging them to live in righteousness, to live in holiness as they become the people of God in this land. And so we think back on those, those commandments and say, well, but, but God, I got a bit of a problem with this one. You say, do not murder, but, but what are we to do? How are we to live in the land when things go wrong? When someone does kill someone else, how are we supposed to respond to that living in this land? I mean, it's not always evident who done it, Right? You know, as your favorite mystery novel aptly demonstrates, it's through three, four hundred pages. Um, you know, as your favorite TV show or, or you know, mystery movie, uh, it's not always clear 
who the guilty party actually was. And as we stand on the verge of the land, Lord, what are we supposed to do when these hostile people around us, these enemies, would attempt to encroach upon your land that you're giving to us, uh, encroach upon we, your people, and begin to infringe upon our ability to do what you're calling us to do? How are we supposed to respond in that situation, given the fact that we come to understand that life is sacred, and it's fragile, and you love it? So we get to chapter 19, and Moses talks explicitly about first-degree murder. He also talks explicitly about manslaughter. That's killing someone, but it's an accident, by mistake. How do we ensure that justice takes place while we live in the land in such a case? And the instructions are are multiple, and and they're actually really very reasonable. Um, When they moved into the land, uh, chapter 19, they were to establish cities of refuge where someone who had... uh, been involved in a murder, could flee to that city. They were to make them proximate so that you could get there in a reasonably quick period of time before someone in a society, an ancient society, before someone tried to take vengeance on you, before someone you know, took matters into their own hand and you had a lynching party that was running off half-cocked without all the facts having been established. And so in the cities of refuge, there would be opportunity for cool heads and a bit of time to, to prevail while the truth could be ascertained. And this, if it was first-degree murder, well, the offender was to be executed. But if the killing was accidental, then the dead person's family was not allowed. There was no vengeance to be sought. Pretty practical. Here's another practical one that we, again, would say, look, this is very reasonable. Um, the guilt of the accused was, to, was never to be established on, on the witness of one person. There always had to be at least two or three witnesses to to the murder before someone could be uh, convicted of first-degree murder. Now, you can imagine how difficult that would be. It begins to narrow the odds. This is not kind of just random killings going on here. And what's even more reasonable is that if there was a history of bad blood between the accused and the deceased, well, they were to take a second look at that case in order to ensure that justice was being served. Because God loves life, and he's granted the right to life, and he insists that violations of that command, when someone has run roughshod over someone else's right to life, well, that that justice would be served, justice would be dealt. Both lives matter to God. So don't miscarry justice. Be very careful on this point. But life is sacred. And when violated, the scriptures say that the blood cries out to me, that's language that's, that's effectively saying, justice, justice must be done, as the blood would cry out. Very reasonable. Here's a third thing that, that gets said. You jump over to chapter 21, and Moses addresses the issue of unsolved murders. Here we are. We're going to move into the land. We want to live as righteous people in the land, living right before God. How do we do it? What happens if, if someone, is, someone has, has been killed, but we don't know how? We don't know why. It, it seems evident that it was a murder, but we, 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 we didn't. Nobody saw it. We, we can't bring someone to justice for this. How do we respond in that case when we don't know who done it? Um, how do we remove, this is the kind of language that's being used in Scripture, how do we remove the sense of blood guilt? That's that, that sort of lingering sense that something horrible has happened. Something very wrong has taken place, it's hanging in the air, we feel the grief around us, we, we want to honor the sacredness of this life that has been lost. 
but we are, un, we are impotent, we're unable to bring someone to justice for it. How, how are we supposed to respond in that situation? And Moses give, gave the children of Israel, he gave them a, a ritual that they could perform where they would know that God was holding the murderer accountable and they were being vindicated, uh, declared free from any association of guilt. It's a very reasonable process uh, that they were invited to, to engage in. Here's a fourth thing that happens. You get to chapter 20, and God gave instructions concerning what we would describe as just warfare. So, so when defending the nation becomes necessary, how do we engage in military, in military conflict? In light of the fact that God loves life and that human life is sacred, what do we do when the brokenness of the peoples around us begins to encroach on we, your people, in your land, who are here to serve your purposes, how are we supposed to respond to this? And so we get to chapter 20. Listen to what Moses says in chapter 20, verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So, so here is the first point that he's making, and that is God is with you. You, you are not alone. You're not having to, you're not defenseless. You're not having to defend yourselves in this situation. Now, notice they still went out to do battle, okay? But God is doing battle on their behalf. He is the one who ultimately is caring for them as they, as they would want to be his people in the land. He's your keeper, so you don't need to be afraid. And then Moses goes on to say, look, and don't force someone to, to, you know, into military service. If they're afraid, if they're afraid, send them home. A great example of that in the account of Gideon. Uh, sends a whole bunch of people home and has a little tiny army, and God demonstrates who really is fighting for Israel. Don't force your soldiers to go in battle. If they're fearful, send them home. Don't let their fear invade the troops. This is a situation where we want to be people of faith who are trusting in God, and so let the fearful go home. Secondly, this is actually several situations where uh, someone would be released from military service. Um, if they're newlywed, send them home. They don't need to fight. They've got other things to do. Um, and, and then there's a, another kind of extraordinary thing that takes place here. Effectively, this is what's being said. Do your best to try to make peace with your enemies. If battle and bloodshed could be avoided, it was to be avoided. Because God loves life. But, but this does kind of tip us then into a question that we've already encountered in our study through Deuteronomy. And that's this idea that a life for a life was being required. Especially in the case, specifically here, in the case of first degree murder. And it's a principle that, that does kind of irritate, maybe you feel it as countercultural to us as modern readers, as modern thinkers. It makes us pause at the very minimum. And, and I think sometimes the question that we pause with would be this one. Was this just the product of, of life being cheap in the ancient world? Is that really what's going on here? I mean, we can look through the pages of history, and man, oh man, it can seem like an awful lot of people lived and then died. And we can look around our world today and see many, many situations where it seems like life is very cheap. We can look within our own nation and see that there are situations where people groups, entire people groups within our borders have been treated as though their lives don't matter. 
God loves life. And, and so actually what's taking place here is there's a demonstration that human life is actually very costly. Human life has always been highly valued, valued by God, always valued in his sight. And we would say, well, how valuable is human life? It's so valuable that if you take a life, it is impossible for you to repay that in any kind of way. There's no possible payment that would be adequate compensation for the life. You go through the law, uh, the book of the law, and you can see multiple times where if this happens, you know, this is what you do to pay it back, you know, and sometimes it's paid double back what you stole, or there are all, all kinds of places. There's no way of paying back in any kind of adequate way the life that you have taken. And so if you have taken a life, and first-degree murder is what's being described here, your action has rendered your own right to life forfeit. This was how it was to be managed in ancient Israel. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Life is sacred. Human beings made in the image of God have a distinct dignity which must be honored. And so, and so as, as modern thinkers, what, we are not in the nation. We do not make... Laws that, that are to be managed in this situation. The, the nature of the new covenant people of God was that we would be across all, all nations around the world. And, and so much of this applied to that situation. But there are some principles here that we want to make sure that we hang on to. Primarily this. That this idea of the sanctity of human life needs to influence, needs to, needs to inform all aspects of how we live as followers of Jesus. We need to be those who are the first in acknowledging the dignity that is inherent in life. And so it needs to influence how we, how we think about abortion, how we think about, about euthanasia, how we care for the disabled in our, in our society. How we attend to the marginalized, those who are, are being pushed to the margins of society by circumstances around them. It needs to influence how we speak and how we act on behalf of those who, who are experiencing prejudice, whether, whether they're men or whether they're women, whatever the color of their skin might be, whatever their religious background would be. This would be the heart behind why we're reaching out to, to refugee family. Human beings have an innate value that God has invested in them and he calls us to be our brother's keeper, to attend to as best we can the value that is inherent in other human beings. And, and so there's, there's no aspect of this sixth commandment that doesn't infringe upon uh, our lives and how we live and, and the practical decisions that we will make and that which we will vote for and that which we will lobby for. But even, even also so, it, it ought to affect how we think about dignity and death. Um, how do we honor someone who has passed away? How do we conduct a funeral in, in a, a God-honoring, a human-honoring kind of way? How do we bury someone with dignity? Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes this value of human life in a paper that he wrote called The Weight of Glory. It may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses 
to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Now, if we were inclined to think that this valuing of human life was just an Old Testament thing, of course, all we need to do is look at the words of Jesus another time. We need to hear his words. Jesus was speaking to the crowds of Jews who had gathered on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, um, delivering a sermon that would come to be known as his Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, Jesus was not correcting the Old Testament here. Don't get him wrong. He was, he was clarifying. He was, he was explaining it. You see, he was saying that, look, to take out a knife and kill your neighbor, indeed, is a, a violation of the sixth commandment. But if you curse your brother in your heart, You've done effectively the same thing. Now, the consequences are going to be different. The implications will be different. But it's the same sin that's been violated. Jesus' point was that the seeds of sin are present in each and every one of us. And, and even the seeds of murder are present in each and every one of us. Full-grown, it, it involves taking another's life physically. But there are lots of little deaths that we cause with our careless words. Raka is a term of contempt. It effectively means, um, I, I wish that you were dead. Or, or, or for, all I can care, for all that matters to me, you could curl up in the corner and die. Raka. Maybe it was that comment that you overheard in the lineup at the grocery store where the, the woman was going on about how difficult a day it was, had been. And someone turned to her and said, Lady, you must have mistaken me for someone who gives up. She dies a little bit. Dies a little bit. Or, or perhaps it's, it's yet another news broadcast about Aboriginal rights and, and this ongoing inquiry on murdered indigenous women. And, and maybe you caught your heart saying, Raka. You fool is kind of an interesting one. Literally, in the Greek, the word is moron. I'm afraid it's been placed on my lips too many times. I suspect I'm not alone. And Jesus is saying, look, you can't get past 
this with just a nudge and a wink. Human beings cornered by sin have all become murderers. Each and every one of us have become murderers. We violated the sixth commandment. And with that revelation, we, we say, oh, dear God, what hope is there for us? How, how can we ever survive? How can you help us? And the answer, of course, is, is that we've got to begin with the acknowledgement that we need Jesus. Turn to Jesus and be saved. What, what we feel in this is the weight and the guilt of sin. And we say, look, it's a serious problem. You know, I thought I was getting off scot-free. And I'm realizing that I'm not. Because the attitudes and the intentions of my heart are being examined by God constantly, and it's not good. And so the invitation is to believe in Jesus as your Savior and turn to him and begin to follow him. Listen to what Jesus said. John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I mean, here Jesus has identified both the problem, the thief comes to steal, kill, destroy. We see his evidence every time we turn on the news. And the solution. Jesus, who was sinless, became sin. He took upon himself your sin. He took upon himself my sin. And when we asked, he gave us his righteousness in return. How are you, how am I made right with God? Believe in Jesus and turn to the Lord. Come to him with your sinful record and acknowledge it as yours. This is my stuff. This is all I've got to bring. I am guilty. Will you forgive me? amazing answer is always yes. It's always yes. And he takes my criminal record and he gives me his spotless, perfect record. And, and, and then it's as though I just always obeyed. All of it's gone. Some of us here this morning, I realize this, some of us know ourselves to, to be murderers. We know that that's what we once were and we're grateful that we've been given a new title. Where we were once called murderer, we have now been declared as forgiven. For some of you, I recognize this is a very offensive concept. You say, what? Jesus' word's not mine. And we wrestle with that. Here's the beautiful, beautiful thing about that. But not only are we given a new label, forgiven, we're also given a new name. We are given his name. We're called by his name. You were always loved, but now through Jesus, you can be restored to the Father. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 6, after listing a series of Ten Commandment violations, Paul says of these Christians that he's speaking to, he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He did that because he loves you. He loves to forgive. I mean, once you've paid the price, I mean, really, you want the prize, right? You know, you, you, you want that which, which you've purchased. Jesus came 
so that we might experience life, and he longs for you to live it. He longs for you to experience it now and through eternity. Now, let me just offer three kind of concluding encouragements. Here's the first one. Choose life. Uh, if you've not turned to, to Jesus, please do it this morning. Bring him your record and exchange it for his. Secondly, love life. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Lewis's words, it is hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about the glory of our neighbor. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. You know, every time you show love and concern and compassion, every time in the name of Jesus that you, you, you care for someone in need, you do so representing the fact that God loves that life. God loves that human being. There's an innate dignity in who they are, who God has created them to be. And so when you love on our kids and kids zone or our youth and youth ministry or the people in your life group, when you care for the people in our church and when you go beyond the walls of our church and care for the people in our community, you're carrying Jesus in a very real way to those who are desperate in their need to, to experience his love and his care and his concern and his compassion for them. If you, can, if you can just, sometimes it's just a little mental shift of seeing what I do at Mission Thrift Store as, as serving those who have been made in God's image. You know, serving those at the food bank as a way of serving people in, who have been made in God's image. Choose life, love life. And then thirdly, find ways to love your life. It is certainly not lost on me that there are many of you who, some of you at least, who feel like life has gotten on top of you. And my concern would be that you never get to the place where you think it's no longer worth enduring. Um, just a few reminders. Some gifts require persistent effort in order to unwrap them. Do you have a friend or family member with a gift under the tree that like they use too much scotch tape? It takes effort sometimes to get into really experiencing the gift. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it to the full. Don't give up. Some storms have to be walked through, have to be endured. But there is a promise of of reprieve on the other side. There's a promise of, 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 of light, of sunshine, of beauty, of rainbow on the other side of the storm. But we, we see it through the pages of Scripture that, that, that so often there are, there are difficult journeys that need to be endured. And then here's the kind of a third thought related to this point, and that would be that um, some gifts get damaged along the way, and they need repair. And, and I would be... I would really be glad to introduce you to a Christian counselor who would journey with you and help you process some of the hurts and the pains, the bumps and the bruises, uh, little or great, in a godly way so that you could experience healing and finally begin to experience the life that God longs for you to experience and live. Let me invite you to stand with me. Worship team's going to come. I want to pray for us. And then we're going to spend some time lingering in response together. Lord Jesus, thank you 
Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the way you have valued human life and the way you have uniquely endowed human beings with your image and the, the inherent dignity that is a part of that. And Lord, forgive us where we have been guilty of not acknowledging that, where there would be people groups that we ha have allowed to be oppressed, allowed to be forgotten, allowed to live in squalor when we could do something about it. Lord, we pray for the for the refugee family that are coming, we ask that you remove obstacles that we could care for them, that we could love on them in the very near future. Lord, we pray for those in our own community who feel unloved, who feel forgotten. May that never be the case, Lord. May we find ways, prompt us by your spirit, that we would be present to each and every one. I pray for those who are, are at risk. At risk of, of falsely believing that their life has, not, has no value. Preserve and protect them, Lord God, and show us how to embrace them with your love, how to bring godly biblical counsel that would give them new perspective on you and their, their situation and themselves. Lead us, O oh God, that we would be as your hands and feet, those who bring hope, those who bring comfort, those who bring expectation for both this life and the next to those who are around us. We confess our weakness in this and ask for your help, praying it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.